Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So what evasive entrepreneurialism is, is the idea that there are certain innovators who are in the business of trying to change or shape the law and regulation by operating strategically in a way that is at the borders of legality or is challenging law and regulation in creative ways. It isn't always necessarily breaking the law outright, but it's pushing up against the law in creative or aggressive ways. Welcome to the Stranded Technologies podcast. I'm your host and founder of Infinita Fund, Nicholas Anzinger. In this show, we talk about how to accelerate the future. Our thesis is that many life-improving technologies are held back by institutional barriers. How can we unblock vast opportunities while mitigating against the risks? What ethical principles, rules, and regulations can guide us on that path? We will discuss these questions with entrepreneurs, policymakers, and industry experts. If you enjoy the show, please give us five stars and visit us at infinitafunds.com to join the community. All right. Today is August the 3rd in 2023, and my guest is Adam Thera. Adam is an innovation policy analyst at the R Street Institute and the author of several books, including Permissionless Innovation and Evasive Entrepreneurs. He blogs at techliberation.com. I've been waiting to have this conversation for a while. Adam is a key thinker in the space of innovation and competition policy, economic stagnation and progress. He wrote several seminal pieces that encapsulate themes of this podcast. We're going to talk about those as well as an issue that he's recently been focusing on a lot, AI regulation. Adam, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Adam, anything you'd like to add to the introduction? What else do you want listeners to know about you? Well, I've spent 31 years in the field of emerging technology policy for six, seven different nonprofit or academic institutions now. So I'm getting to be a bit of an old man in the field, but I try to stay on top of all the breaking developments better than your average uh, 54-year-old man. <laughs> How did, what did, attracted you to that field in the first place? That is a funny story. It was a complete accident. I was studying in the late 80s and early 1990s to cover trade and industrial policy issues. And I went to work at the Adam Smith Institute in London, England, and then came back to the United States in 1992. And when I started working in DC, one day my boss at the time said, well, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I said, well, I'm studying to be a trade analyst and cover industrial policy. And he said, well, there's all sorts of people doing that. Go find something else to do. <laughs> And I said, well, that's not good because I just started to do a master's degree on international trade and economics issues. So that's, that's not good to hear. Um, and he's like, well, there must be something else you're interested in. And I literally said this, this is a true story. I said to him, this was 1993, have you ever, ever heard of this thing called the internet? And my boss said, no. Uh, and I explained it to him and he's like, mm, okay, that's doesn't sound like it's going to be anything important, but go ahead and feel, if you want to study that for a little while, write about it, go ahead. 
And there I was off and running on the ground floor of what would become the most important technology and technology policy issue of our lifetimes. And it was a complete stroke of luck. Uh, right guy at the right place at the right time, basically, is the story. There were no degrees in internet economics or internet law at the time, cyber law. This wasn't a thing. Everybody was a telecom or a media policy analyst. And then the internet came along and changed everything radically, really, really quickly, including the world of public policy. And so luckily I was doing that at the time. And then everybody now is an internet policy or a tech policy analyst. So I just was lucky to get ahead of the curve by complete accident. Well, in business as in policy, it seems to be good to be ahead of the curve and at the frontiers, right? Yeah, that's true. I'm curious, so movies and popular culture influence a lot of what we think about technology and competition and progress. What do you think is generally the image that popular movies convey about technology? Well, it's a miserable story. Um, and I have written about this quite a bit because I, I'm a strong believer in the idea that pop culture and uh, entertainment have a profound influence on debates over technology policy. Technology policy is often shaped by conceptions of technology that are reflected in movie plots or television plots that people are very familiar with. Because let's face it, they're not going to read technical literature. They're not going to read some journal about robotics or some seminal treatise about artificial intelligence. They're going to watch, you know, Terminator. They're going to watch 2001, A Space Odyssey, which is, by the way, my favorite movie of all time. I'm a fan of dystopian stories, but this is all you get. When you watch and you see popular depictions of technology and science fiction, and specifically of robotics and of artificial intelligence, it is uniformly negative. It is just dripping with dystopian dread at every moment. And this has now come to influence the public policy narrative around these technologies as they've gone mainstream. Almost every congressional hearing in the United States or parliamentary inquiry uh, in Europe where you have debates about this, it, it doesn't take long for some member of parliament in some body or some lawmaker in Congress to basically say, well, we don't want the Terminator, do we? <laughs> and, and so we're up against that problem as defenders of progress and innovation, which is you have to explain to them why that's not reality. That is science fiction. And while it's compelling and fun science fiction, it's not the way the world necessarily works. In fact, it's not the way the world works at all. And you have to unpack that, but it's very, very difficult. Um, and once Black Mirror started and became popular as a television show, uh, I started noticing that many of the debates I would have in universities and in policy events after I would, you know, really start to get in a fight with the other person who was defending like a hardcore regulatory position. And I would explain why all their arguments were wrong. They would just end and say, yeah, but didn't you watch the latest Black Mirror episode this week? That's where we're at. And I think it's going to get worse. I mean, here in the United States, as you've probably heard, you know, uh, Hollywood writers and actors are on strike. And they're one of the biggest issues they're striking about is about the use of artificial intelligence in movies, either as script writing or acting, whatever. And eventually that strike will end. And then all of those writers and actors will go back to work. And what do you think the new plots about technology are going to look like once they get back to work? <laughs> they're going to be even more uniformly negative and dystopian about the evils of technology 
after they had just fought a major union battle against it. So it's, uh, it's not good. Popular culture and technology is not a good situation. Yeah, I just wonder where that deep human instinct or resentment against it is coming from. And at the same time, we've also become so good at making these movies. I almost dread that I enjoy them, right? I enjoy Black Mirror. I enjoy Blade Runner. I enjoy Terminator. Absolutely. These are great movies. They're great shows. There's no doubt about it. I mean, my favorite books as well often are, you know, a lot of misery, a lot of pessimism, but they're fun to read. Let's face it. it, that's, That's the reason. It, that's one of the reasons that dystopianism dominates, right? Because it is entertaining. If a plot just ends with the way the real world works, which is that things get be- incrementally better year to year, it's like, oh, yawn, who cares? You know, that's not going to sell any tickets at the box office. It's not going to sell any copies of the book. If you just tell the, the, the normal story of the progression of history and technological innovations role in it, uh, which is about incremental improvements in human, you know, standards of living over time, sometimes massive improvements. But always incremental, you know, every year things get a little bit better, but that's not a compelling narrative for a script writer in Hollywood. You're not going to sell any scripts that way. Yeah. Are there exceptions, movies that you think had a very good influence or portray it more accurately? Not many. There are a few and they almost all involve technology's role in space travel. And you think about a movie like Interstellar, right? Uh, Or a movie like um, Contact Uh, or Arrival, The Arrival. I mean, there's, there's several good movies that involve technology more in the background, playing an important role in helping humanity reach the stars or find new solar systems or homes or communicate with, you know, friendly aliens or something. But those are rare, you know, and I, I, I used to go around saying that Star Trek was the most important positive depictions of technology, but many people have pushed back on me and quite rightly so, but there are many episodes of Star Trek, the original Star Trek, the next generation that involve like machines gone mad and, you know, AI systems gone rogue. And so Star Trek, yes, technology is a positive force. But again, in Star Trek, technology is a policy force, the positive force in the background. You see it not in the front of the plot. You see it in the background. We see a, a, a replicator making instant food and drinks for anybody to the way they like them, right? Or transporting people in the transporter up and down. And it's just like, oh, um, there it is. It works. It's a background technology, right? But it's a huge deal. It's like central to the way that the, the enterprise works and, uh, and humans get around and, and do great things. So those are some of my favorites, you know, Interstellar, Contact, Star Trek movies. Um, but again, as I've said, the more compelling and really probably interesting movies are often the ones that involve robots gone rogue and AI, you know, Terminator scenarios. It's just, it's in our system to enjoy that titillating kind of dangerous dystopian narrative. And so we shouldn't expect many positive plots. In fact, uh, I told this story, I think in my last book or one of my recent papers that Neil Stevenson, um, the great author, got so angry with the, the, the negative depictions of progress and technology in popular science fiction that he started a project about a decade ago called Project Hieroglyph, where he actually worked with Arizona State University here in the United States to basically put money forward to hire young sci-fi writers to write positive stories involving technology and progress. I don't remember how many there were. There were several dozen. Um, And unsurprisingly, they weren't that interesting. (laughs) I mean, they were good authors and the stories weren't bad. I didn't read all of them, but 
at the end of the day, it is very difficult, again, for the reasons I outlined, to craft a positive message about technology and yet make a compelling plot and a narrative and have a, a clear villain that, uh, an, you know, antagonist and a protagonist kind of situation. Um, it's just, it's just difficult. So I, I don't expect that situation to change, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's also not necessarily to depict technology in this positive light. Maybe in the background is fine. And maybe the antidote is more like that we start understanding that the corrective to it is a non sequitur. Like, therefore, we need governments to regulate things. That we kind of have a different narrative or do things differently when it comes to that. And then people can still be yeah. afraid. And then that just means we get to work and work on like safety systems against these things in sort of a permissionless way, right? Which is... I think, but I think the other problem here with that idea is that when you see other plots just about business in general, the, you know, business people are treated as villains most of the time and government actors are treated as heroes. And so it's, there's a general anti-capitalistic or anti-freedom kind of narrative with a lot of movies often because of who they're written by, you know, they're like, you know, people who are like quiet Marxists who didn't, it, their humanities degree didn't pan out and they went to Hollywood and somehow started writing scripts. And now they're talking about the evils of capitalism somewhere besides the classroom. They're just doing it at a, at a bigger stage. You, you combine that with the sci-fi dystopianism and the concern about technology and you get a, a really, really toxic mix. And so yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm skeptical. I, and I've known people who've tried to say like, well, we can go out and change it. Let's good positive, you know, plots and movies. And, you know, I, I say, good luck to you. I'm not going to waste my time doing that. I, I wish we could change popular culture, but I, I don't think we can. I'm just very pessimistic about that. Yeah. I mean, the one movie that I can think of where it's the government agents perceived as negative are a sometimes spy movies and mm -hmm. also Della Spires Club, right? That's the one glaring yeah. exception. Well, and there's other movies about business where a small businessman or an entrepreneur who's ready to make it big is somehow crushed by a combination of big government working with big corporations. There's a lot of movies like that. I mean, I don't know if you've ever seen Tucker, uh, Francis Ford Coppola's Tucker, but it's about a famous car maker who very briefly took on large automotive companies, but then those companies and the government tried to beat him down. It's a true story. They basically ran him out of the car business. There's a 1951 movie called Man in the White Suit uh, about Alec Guinness plays an inventor who creates a, a magical new substance to make fabrics cheap and plentiful. And everybody in industry and government like, no, you can't do that kind of thing. So there are some plots like that that are fun, uh, but they're usually like a small entrepreneur who's up against the big man. And the big man can be the, a big government and a, and a big company. And of course, those things really do happen in the real world. But yeah, it's still pretty much a story of most like successful startups and many of the ones that I see or fund, right? Right, absolutely. So it's a great story and something to build on. But what I'd love to talk about, and that kind of strikes in the same direction, uh, evasive entrepreneurship, right? So it seems to me that's a necessary correction to the absence of permissionless innovation. So maybe to get there, do you want to introduce the term permissionless innovation? What is it and why is it important? Certainly. Well, permissionless innovation, first of all, this is a, a term that no one knows who coined this term originally. I, I did not come up with this term. I've tried to popularize this term as a policy notion, but really 
it started getting currency in Silicon Valley in the United States in the 1990s and 2000s to basically represent the idea of the general freedom to experiment and learn through trial and error tinkering. And it reflects, permissionless innovation reflects the sort of openness to change and disruption and risk-taking, uh, a willingness to accept the failure side of trial and error. Nobody thinks about the error in trial and error, but it's really important to learn from our failures. What I try to do in my work is to say, well, permissionless innovation is both sort of an ethos or an engineering concept, a computer concept, but it's also a good way to think about policy, that it's a way to think about a default position of government activity towards entrepreneurial activity. And under a permissionless innovation default, innovation and innovators are treated as innocent until proven guilty. Basically, we give them the benefit of the doubt and say, we're going to let them experiment and run their, their trials, their experiments, see what happens. And then if problems develop, we'll deal with them after the fact. The opposite of permissionless innovation is far more well-known, and it goes by the name of the precautionary principle, which almost everybody knows what that is, who does policy, and it emanated out of Europe in the context of environmental law, but it has been applied far more broadly now. And the precautionary principle basically takes the opposite approach and says, no, we're going to treat most risks and most activities as guilty until proven innocent. You, we have dangers and harms that we want to avoid in this world. And therefore, our policy default towards innovation and entrepreneurial activity will be restrictive by design. We'll be limiting innovative acts and creativity to make sure that worst case scenarios don't develop. And the entire point of my book on permissionless innovation comes down to this one line. The reason I defend permissionless innovation is this, is because if we spend all of our time worrying about hypothetical worst case scenarios, and then we base public policy on hypothetical worst case scenarios, then it means a great many best case scenarios will never come about. That it's only through trial and error learning that we get prosperity. And for me, when it comes down to like one line that summarizes everything I believe in, it's that trial and error experimentation moves the world. You've got to allow people to tinker, to try, to do things differently if you want to get any prosperity and progress in this world. And so this is why these defaults matter deeply towards merging technologies, because if you don't allow freedom by design uh, through permissionless innovation, then guess what? You're going to get a lot less innovation. It's a really simple thing. If you just say to entrepreneurs, don't do it, you know, or don't do it except under these, you know, extreme conditions, then unsurprisingly, you will get less of that thing. And so we have plenty of examples historically in many different cultures and continents of governments basically saying, well, this is allowed. We'll allow you to go out and do trial and error here. But all these other things, no. And it's really easy. All you need to do is sort of stack them up and look like over there where the technologies or innovators were free. We probably got more of it, didn't we? Yes, we did. And over here where it was restricted, we got less. And, and so that's the general framework. Of course, there's a broad spectrum between permissionless innovation and the precautionary principle. And it's never so neat or black and white. Sometimes it is that black, but not always. But that's the general framing of permissionless innovation as a policy concept versus the precautionary principle. And what I've argued in my work since then is that you can think about every technology policy debate through that prism. And like, where on the spectrum do we start and 
some technologies are lucky. They are what I call born free. They're born into an environment where there's no preemptive precautionary principle-based regulatory regime or agency that automatically constrains innovation in the space. So for example, that's how Bitcoin started and cryptocurrency started for the most part. Uh, it's how, uh, in some cases, like the AI stuff is mostly starting. The internet itself was mostly born free and smartphones and social media generally born free. But then there's everything else. And all these other technologies that come along, for example, like a driverless car is not born free or a drone, not born free. It's often born into captivity. It's put into an innovation cage, as I call it. It says, oh, you're a driverless car, but really you're a car. And we regulate cars pretty aggressively. So we're putting you in this innovation cage called automotive regulation. Well, you're a drone? That's interesting, but you're still a flying thing. And we regulate flying things over here under this body of law. So you get in that cage. And then you have to petition for freedom to get out of it. You have to try to lobby and to change laws in a number of ways. And all too often, you can't. For the reasons that you identified just a moment ago, there are a whole lot of big businesses and a lot of other special interests and government forces that don't want to let you out of that cage and say they will do whatever they can to make that the walls around that cage high and tight so that you can escape it. And they'll try to put new technologies that come along in it as well that maybe don't belong in it at all. The difficult thing that I have when talking to people about that is, uh, or people who are not already familiar with your work, that judge a policy or regulation by its intent, right? Mm -hmm. So the intent is that, no, we, just, we want the good stuff, but we don't want the bad stuff. Right. So the regulation is just to prevent the bad stuff or this is there to protect consumers or investors. And then you automatically in this position, like you have to prove to them that their ideal scenario is not true. And that's mm -hmm. kind of what's your what is your kind of your best tool or argument kind of to break through that? Yeah, well, one of the most, if not the most influential thinkers in my life has been Thomas Sowell. Thomas Sowell's work taught me that good intentions make almost no difference whatsoever. That in fact, he was pretty brutal about it. He says, usually good intentions do great harm. And what he means by that is that we should judge policies by real world results. We should take a look at evidence. We should examine the world around us and say like what worked and what didn't, and then make some judgments about how to adjust policies accordingly. But to judge a policy just by its intentions instead of its merits is, is foolishness. It's everybody's for the most part, got good intentions, or at least they will say they do. But it doesn't really make any difference if it doesn't improve humanity's lot in this world. We, we should, again, judge policies by their actual real world outcomes. Now, of course, that doesn't solve another problem that a critical have. The, the, the best criticism of permissionless innovation is that there are some concerns, some risks, some harms that are too great to allow for any trial and error experimentation. And I agree. It, the, the difference is, is that I believe that's a smaller list than everybody else who makes the argument that it's a long list because everybody will look around and say, again, hypothetical worst case scenarios drive a lot of policy. They'll say, well, this could happen and that could happen. And if we allow freedom, oh my gosh, you know? And if you spend enough time rationalizing these things and trying to like hypothesize about worst case scenarios, of course you can probably make an argument that sounds pretty compelling that we have to address preemptively. 
Well, the problem is nobody has a crystal ball. Nobody's able to stare distant into the future and figure out what the actual harms are. And they're also often unable to do adequate trade-off analysis. So by regulating in some ways and stopping innovations, we don't know what the foregone innovations will be, the so-called opportunity costs, as, as economists and political scientists refer to them. And the opportunity costs of excessively burdensome regulation can be really profound. It can be amazingly dangerous when we're talking about things like restrictions on ability to create new life-saving drugs or medical devices or other technologies. I always give this example in my work because I spent a lot of time covering driverless cars and autonomous systems. And in the United States, we have a public health disaster with human driving that is now on the, the death toll rising again for the first time in decades. Over 40,000 people, I think last year, 43,000 people died in automobile accidents in the United States. It's a staggering death toll. And put it more concretely, every single day in the United States, 6,500 people are injured in automobile accidents and 100 of them die. And what's amazing about that is that the government itself has shown 94% of those accidents are attributable to human error, to human mistakes. So here comes along a technology called driverless cars. And driverless cars, you can say whatever you want about a driver or driverless car, robot car. You know this, it doesn't get drunk. It doesn't get drowsy. It doesn't get distracted. And so we have to believe that like, if we had more driverless technology and it keeps getting better, that we could make a major dent in this, excuse the pun, in this problem of, you know, human driven catastrophes on the road. Now I love cars, believe me, I collect cars, I love cars, but the reality is, is that we know we could do something to probably address these dangers through technological innovation. But the government looks at it and says, looks at it totally different. Looks at it and says, well, these new driverless cars could be dangerous. There's nobody operating them. We, I mean, what happens if they get in an accident? Who's going to pay? How do we have insurance? How do we tax them? What do we do? And you like, and then the, it's the parade of horribles. All the hypothetical worst case scenarios come to bear. And then we get what we have now, a very slow roll of this new technology. So this is why intentions can't guide policy. Because evidence needs to, because obviously the intentions of all the automotive safety regulations that are on the books or that are being proposed are there with the best of intentions. Of course, we need some of them, but the reality is, is that many of them are having a counterproductive effect on human welfare. And so I think this is the best way to address it with, you know, critics of permissionless innovation and defenders of the cautionary principle. But the problem is, it takes a long time to explain this, right? It takes you a have long to time walk through to do an entire yeah. podcast about this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you you, you <laughs> can spend, you know, 20, 30 minutes outlining all the data and everything, but it doesn't make it an easy soundbite. It doesn't make it easy when they're going to just hold up a poster of like a, a car crash and say, look what will happen if robot cars drive on the roads on their own, you know. You know, so anecdotes and worst case scenarios drive policy in a huge way and facts and dispassionate analysis yeah. uh, take a backseat. And what I'm just trying to explain sometimes, not very successfully yet, but when these things are regulated and they're hard coded and the entrepreneurs I work with, they come up with new solutions all the time. So if you do that, then you're preventing them from coming up with new and better solutions. That's right. Right. Exactly so, right. and that's also like when you have a better idea to do like healthcare regulations, why not? Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, it's a piece right. of code. It works this way. If this happens to you, then that, 
could there be better ways of doing that? Quite obviously. So why don't we let people develop better ways to regulate? Like, nobody's ever done clinical trials on whether the FDA regulations make things safer or not, right? So well, we just right. assume they do. And, yeah. And so this is where we get back to evasive entrepreneurialism because exactly. the problem we're, we're describing, you know, there are a couple of ways to solve this problem. Like one would be for government to understand that its policies can be counterproductive or just understand that there are benefits to trial and error, to experiments. And so governments can be more willing to reform their policies to allow for A-B tests for different types of trials. And some people call that sandboxing and some people call it experimental governance. But this doesn't involve like abolishing an agency or deregulating all law. It just says like, give innovation a chance somewhere, somehow, under certain circumstances. I'd prefer a more broad-based deregulation myself, but we should start by understanding that there are benefits to experiments. Some governments do get that, but it's very hard to get any change. I'll give you an example going back to driverless cars. Right now, there are some states in the United States that are trying to allow for more innovation in driverless cars and trucks. But unfortunately, our unions and our trial lawyers are preventing it in all these states. And so even when some governments want to do the right thing, there are special interests that come forward and do everything they can to stop it. So... Under that context, if you're not going to get any deregulation and, and as an entrepreneur, and you're not going to get any even ex freedom to experiment in a small little patch somewhere, what are you going to do? Are you just going to give up? You might. You might go overseas. You know, we live in a world of global innovation arbitrage where innovators and investors often move to wherever they're treated most hospitably. But you can't just always pick up everything and move when you're a driverless car company. That's not easy to do, right? It's one thing if you're a coder. That's easier to move around. But if you've got physical assets and big things and factories, you know, you're not going to just pick up and move off to another shore. So what you're left with is a decision. Do we give up, move into another field or wait until the political and regulatory climate improves? So what evasive entrepreneurialism is, is the idea that there are certain innovators who are in the business of trying to change or shape the law and regulation by operating strategically in a way that is at the borders of legality or is challenging law and regulation in creative ways. It isn't always necessarily breaking the law outright, but it's pushing up against the law in creative or aggressive ways. And so evasive entrepreneurs have always been part of an economy. Sometimes they've been part of an underground economy. But sometimes they are just operating in creative ways to sort of like say, well, there's a permitting process, but we're going to go through it differently. We're going to try to do this and then ask you for, you know, forgiveness later if we mess up kind of thing. And so the sharing economy is a pretty good example in recent years of, you know, how evasive entrepreneurialism works, where ride sharing companies and space sharing companies basically started to go out and just offer you know, rides to people for space to rent in ways that it wasn't clear if it was legal. And so it's an interesting story to think about how Uber and Lyft and those companies started doing that with ride sharing, because for the better part of 70 years or so, there were many people, many economists and political scientists who had proven that taxi cab regulation and limo regulation was a very anti-consumer 
kind of policy. It limited competition. It raised prices. It kept quality low. And everybody agreed on this. Everybody, except for the taxi commissions and the taxi cab companies. <laughs> they liked their little cartel. And even the federal government in the United States actually agreed with economists and political scientists that this system should be reformed of state and local regulations favoring taxi cab interests. But nothing ever changed despite compelling evidence that this was an anti-consumer system. All of a sudden, after decades of this and nothing changing, changes, along comes Uber and Lyft and overnight everything changed. Everything changed in that field because they were evasive entrepreneurs. They decided to go ahead and let the public try these new technologies out. And guess what? The public liked choice and competition and better prices and better quality. And, and Uber then, was even really deliberate about that, right? So mm -hmm. not sure if you read the book by Bradley Tusk, who did Uber's mm -hmm. regulatory strategy then, but they know very clearly what they were doing, what they, what they were up against. So they had like a deliberate media and PR strategy that was working with their users in the districts where they wanted to get the regulators to back off, right? So they mm -hmm. were very strategic about using their fans, their users, after they've gotten them, you know, involved in using into the product to advocate for them. In fact, Bradley Tusk, um, I, I talk about this story in my book on evasive entrepreneurialism. When he was working with Uber in New York City, they had a strategy to take on the mayor of New York City, who at the time was name was Bill de Blasio. And Mayor de Blasio and the New York City Council was pushing rules that would have limited the ability of Uber and Lyft to compete in Manhattan, downtown New York, that is. And so what Uber did, and Bradley Tusk was a part of this, is that overnight they recoded the app, the Uber app on their, uh, for, for smartphones, so that when you went to your slider to pick a car on Manhattan Island in New York City, there was a slider option that said de Blasio mode. And when you slid your slider over from UberX to Uber Black Car to de Blasio mode, it said no cars available in New York City because Dil, if Bill de Blasio gets his way. Amazing. And then it said, if you don't want that result, call your local congressperson at this number. The next day, Bill de Blasio and the New York City Council changed their position. And basically what Uber had done is they had enlisted their consumers as citizen lobbyists to go and make their case for them with New York policymakers. So what I argue in my book on evasive entrepreneurs, building on that example and many, many others, is that this doesn't mean that laws completely go away. It doesn't mean we live in anarchy after this. What changes is the political leverage of innovators. The question is, how do entrepreneurs get a fair chance? How do they get a chance to go out and try something new? If they can't reform a broken old political system and no laws are being changed, well, you're left with this really hard decision. Do we give up, move to another country, or do we just try it? And what Aveso entrepreneurs sometimes do is they do it. The public loves it. It changes the dynamic and then it changes the political leverage they have 
to advocate for more reform or a little bit more freedom in this world. And this is what's happening increasingly in a lot of different fields. And it happens both because the innovation is intentional, but also because the speed at which all innovation is happening today is moving faster and faster. And that's called the pacing problem. The fact that technology is evolving very, very fast, literally, or sometimes exponentially, but policy evolves incrementally, very slowly, right? And the gap between those things is changing. And sometimes laws and regulations are really struggling to keep pace with new technologies and change. And that's called the pacing problem. So the pacing problem, in my perspective, is the pacing benefit. The fact that technology is changing faster means that this becomes the most powerful check on government power that there is. Because increasingly, the law doesn't provide that check. It should. I wish it did. But when it doesn't, innovators are left with the hard choice about, do we just go ahead and try to do it and see what happens and defend ourselves later, however it may play out? That's yeah. a difficult decision. And a lot of, yeah. a lot of innovators won't do that because they'll be scared about the consequences. Yeah. But some I mean, companies are. Nobody wants to go to jail. Yeah, and that's right. We're presumptively law abiding until you realize that many of these laws are bad or unjust. And do you, are you allowed to break unjust or bad laws? Uh, if you have a diligence well enough, yes, <laughs> but then you should also do a good thing with it. So if you want to do really unethical stuff, then don't, it, it, but it isn't always wise, right? You don't want to go to jail. And what I see in that industry to let it in sometimes where you have a lot of evasive entrepreneurs, it can also backfire against your peers or your community. Right. Yep. So there's been an important, a big case of a biotechnology innovator, biohackers that was like in public injecting themselves with <laughs> what's considered a risky therapy. And ethically, I think he should have the choice, but that led like to a big scandal and led to a very negative media perception of him and some of his peers and of his companies. So I wonder if you've encountered similar stories in your research where an entrepreneur has to make the choice of where you can risk negative consequences for your community, your company, your reputation. How, how do you navigate those kind of decisions when you're at that? Yeah, that's a great question. So there's a couple of different questions you asked there. The, the first was about the ethics of evasive entrepreneurialism. And I spend an entire chapter in my book talking about ethics of innovation broadly and in evasive entrepreneurialism in particular. And I talk about this in the context of civil disobedience, because I, I talk about it as technological civil disobedience. And by technological civil disobedience, I mean the technologically enabled refusal of individuals, groups, or firms to obey certain laws or comply fully with them if they find them offensive, confusing, time-consuming, expensive, or perhaps just annoying and irrelevant. Usually we say, well, that's not for you to judge as a company or an individual, right? But there are times when individuals or groups stand up and say, no, the law is wrong. The law is not serving our interests or it's harming other people actively. And we believe in change and we're going to take steps independent, independently to change the law. So that is what I refer to as technological civil disobedience. Now, not all entrepreneurs are, are taking on law that boldly and saying, we're out to innovate, to like change the whole system kind of. They're usually doing it more narrowly. They're just trying to get something done. They just want to offer like a little new product of some sort. Like here's a new cryptocurrency thing. You know, here's a new 
drug treatment, whatever. It's a very narrow thing, but obviously there's a lot of law that governs financial systems and drugs and medical devices. And so they have to figure out, can we challenge it? And sometimes they do it on moral grounds. So let's go back to the biohacker example. I have a lot of talk about biohacking in my book. And let's talk about one group um, that you may be familiar with called the Four Thieves Vinegar Collective. This is a group of left-leaning anarchists. They are uh, lefty anarchists who, they hate drug companies. And uh, they kind of hate government by extension because they think government's controlled by large pharma drug companies. And so they believe that certain drugs and medical devices should be free to the public, that there should be no charge. And one of them, for example, would be the EpiPen, like a pen to inject into your heart and if you're having a certain type of reaction or other types of life-saving drugs. And so they have gone out and worked together using publicly available information to try to create their own private medical treatments. And it's really kind of astonishing because in some cases they've done it. And, you know, the question is, is that ethical? Is it ethical for them to experiment on themselves or to give other people that information, right? Another good example is um, prosthetics. There are people who use 3D printers and open source code to create and print limbs for children and adults with limb deficiencies, with missing hands and missing feet or legs. And they're doing it quite effectively. And so I tell the story in the book of one nonprofit uh, organization called Enable, Enable. And, and Enable basically is a group of volunteers that have come together. They use their own 3D printers, their own blueprints. They share information to create these prosthetics, especially for children who can't afford them. And so I was once at a hospital in the United States called Johns Hopkins University Hospital, where I debated an official from the Food and Drug Administration. And at that conference, a bunch of biohackers and 3D printer people came together and made on the spot in an auditorium in the hospital, new hands for children, however they wanted them. And children would come up and they'd say, what kind of hand do you want them? They say, I want a hand that looks, makes me look like Iron Man or the Wolverine. And instantaneously on the spot, someone would fire up a 3D printer and use a blueprint that would give that child a new functional hand that was like yellow and red, like Iron Man. And you could imagine how happy that made that child. <laughs> and it made their parents even happier because guess what? A professional regulatory approved prosthetic would cost them thousands and thousands of dollars they don't have. They were getting those prosthetic hands for free. They weren't being charged. It was a voluntary payment system that was set up by people to fund this. So I debated this FDA regulator, Food and Drug Administration regulator, which oversees medical devices in the United States. And I asked this doctor, I said, doctor, there are amazing things happening in this hospital today. I would call them technological miracles. But correct me if I'm wrong, isn't everything that is happening here with these 3D printers completely illegal under current law? And he said, well, yes, it kind of is, but we're not going to sanction anyone or find them yet or I said, what yet? You know, what are you going to do? Are you going to come after these average parents, these average coders, these average 3D printers? Are you going to put them in jail for giving children new hands? Really? And what the Food and Drug Administration later did is they decided to change policy towards prosthetics. And in a very creative mood, uh, move, they issued guidance for 3D printed prosthetic technologies that said, instead of regulating them, 
We're going to offer innovators advice for how to do it safely. That's a good model. I mean, what happened there, though, is important, is that technological change, a base of entrepreneurialism and new technologies of freedom, they changed that political dynamic. They made the Food and Drug Administration regulators realize we can no longer regulate the way we used to regulate. We can't use top-down command and control regulations anymore. We have to be more flexible. And so issuing, as they did, a set of guidance principles saying, if you use a 3D printer to do this, be careful about this and that. And it also made some good points. Like, for example, a 3D printed prosthetic hand is easier to make and less dangerous than a 3D prosthetic printed foot. Because if you mess up a foot, if it doesn't work, you could have trips and falls and more serious accidents. So there was a different set of standards or best practices that they recommended for like 3D printed feet and legs. And that makes sense because I'm all right with government doing that so long as it's not saying, and therefore you can never do it again without our permission. It was saying, go ahead and keep doing this, but here are some guidelines. Here are some principles to guide innovation. That's a really good example of going back to what I started with of experimental administration or experimental government, right? It's government saying like, look, we don't have to be command and control you know, and so rigid about regulation. Um, they still are, they still exist. You know, the regulator is not going away, but at least they're doing things better and they're doing it better because of technological change, evasive entrepreneurialism and the rise of technologies of freedom. That's what changed that dynamic. And so going back to the ethical question, again, is it ethical for those people to do what they did with the 3D printers to create the hands and the feet for the kids? I would say absolutely it is. That made the world better. Yeah, that's brilliant. And I love what these examples have in common of the prosthetics and of Uber is that you're talking directly with the customer and delighting them and making them an advocate for you for, for change in the law. And I'm in the business of evasive entrepreneurship myself, right? So these are the kinds of companies or entrepreneurs that, that I'm interested in. And I'm actually based on in Prosper on Roatan, right? Which is kind of a new jurisdiction, just uh, two and a half hours flight away from Miami, where we do exactly that. We kind of showcase it, we can trial it, then we can bring it back to the United States, right? So that gives a, a regulatory sandbox and freedom. And it also has a new regulatory incentive design and structure, which is really interesting. Um, what I am worried about when it comes to evasive entrepreneurship is the example of someone like Sam Bankman-Fried. Right. So he kind of was an evasive entrepreneur. He was going to the Bahamas and he was using kind of novel legal and jurisdictional structures. And I don't know what his ultimate end game was, but it seemed to me like that he wanted to basically be regulated in the United States the way he wanted to. So he could capture that market. Right. So. Have you also seen that as sort of a, a darker side of evasive entrepreneurship? Yeah, that, that is a legitimate problem. And it's not just Sam Bankman-Fried. I mean, um, you look at the case of Theranos, right? There are fraudsters that exist and will take advantage of other people. We do need remedies to solve those problems. Um, permissionless innovation is not anarchy. It is a belief that, again, you should be generally allowed to be free and free to experiment and innovate. But if you do harm to others, there does need to be ramifications. And what I propose as a solution to these things is that we continue to have things that govern fraud and unfair and deceptive practices, consumer 
arms of other sorts. We certainly continue to have contracts and property rights and torts, uh, various class actions and court activities that can solve these problems. The question though is, do we need a preemptive regulatory regime to cover all of these technologies? And there are a small class where you do need to have some preemptive activity because the dangers are significant. But there's often a better way to do it besides command and control regulation. For example, you can have for new technologies, a set of best practices or guiding principles or norms that generally are applicable to new innovators, small or large in a new sector. And you could encourage people to follow these rules and you can try to get them to come into some rough but voluntary compliance with a, with a set of best practices. So going back to our friends in the 3D printing world of the biohacker, the 3D printing community has certain standards, certain principles about like what is a good blueprint for a 3D printed prosthetic hand or what. And they work together to try to enforce a, a code among developers of saying like, this is good, this isn't, you know, there's standards. And there's norms and there's also law. There is also sanctions that can apply if you still bring to market something that is fundamentally dangerous and you knew it and you harm people with it, you can be sued, right? So there's ways to address concerns about technological risk and harm that don't go completely overboard with heavy-handed, excessive, upfront technological controls in the form of precautionary principle mandates for new technology. Because we do have fraudsters, we do have people that will scam other people, and we need remedies for that. But it doesn't mean we stop all innovation because of those people, right? There has to be a balance here. It's not like everybody is Theranos or everybody is Sam Bankman-Fried. You know, it's, there are, th these are, exceptions. You know, most other people who are trying to innovate or do it because they really do want to make the world a better place. You know, they also do want to make money in the process. And this is what leads people to be you know, suspicious. You want to make money trying to do this? Like, hey folks, that's the way the world works. People expect to be compensated for their efforts. <laughs> you know, but some critics, especially people on the left, the number one reason I find that they want preemptive regulation and precautionary controls of technology because they could believe that money make it or profit seeking in and of itself is somehow sullying the act. Like it's, it's a strange thing, but I document this in my book, my base of entrepreneurs book. Many of the same activities in this world are regulated completely differently depending on whether you charge a dollar for them or, not, or a pound for them or whatever. If you charge any money to do some things, you're regulated immediately. If you give it away free, Sometimes it's unregulated. Now that's really strange, isn't it? Why would it be that doing something voluntarily, you know, that is risky would be okay, but doing something for a small charge would automatically mean it's unethical. That doesn't make any sense from the risk perspective. If it's risky, it's risky, right? I'll give you one example I give in my book. If you are a drone hobbyist, you just like flying drones and you put a drone in the air at a wedding to take a picture of the wedding party from above. If you do that on a voluntary basis as a hobbyist, to some guy at the party at the wedding, you're not regulated the same way a professional is who's a professional photographer charging money for taking a drone photo. 
it doesn't make any sense. My question with something like Sabat Mafrit was around, well, we do live in the world that we live. So evasive entrepreneurs can capture the existing institutions and they can capture even sort of the existing pre-market approval style regulations, right? Mm -hmm. So they are the ones that kind of break through and get the benefits from being like the ones that are approved. But then they are the ones who know and can talk to the regulators and then can say, hey, or it can influence them to get rid of the rest of the competition, right? So that's kind of one of my worries, um, and especially also with right now with Sam Altman and OpenAI, because that seems to me, I'm not sure he's, he's what he's going for. I can't read his mind, but it's kind of a risk that I see. Is that something you've thought about? Yeah, I've spent a lot of time thinking about that because um, artificial intelligence and machine learning and robotic systems are probably one of the most exciting current technological revolutions we're living through. I don't know if what motivates Sam Altman and other people who advocate for these things, you know, licensing of AI, you know, new AI global regulators and these things. Sometimes it could be that they want to capture those systems. Other times they might have heartfelt concerns about the safety of these systems. But the bottom line is at the end of the day, this is how you end up creating a computational cartel. This is how you end up locking in the market power of a handful of companies in a sector as it's just starting to grow. And it, again, it may not be the intention of those companies, but I'm sure they wouldn't mind being in that cartel. <laughs> so they're not going to fight it either. I'm always very careful about judging intentions and judging motivations, I don't think they should be the basis of how we consider policies to be effective. Um, uh, what I think about is like, are they effective, right? Does it happen? Does it make a difference? Does it, does it move the needle on progress? And a lot of what's being proposed in the AI field right now would not move the needle in a positive direction. It would move it backwards. I've even labeled what's happening right now, a quote unquote war on computation. I believe we're seeing an, an all-out assault on technological freedom in the field of AI. And the worst part about that is that it could leave governments in greater control of a really massive new technological infrastructure that they can use to surveil and control information. That's a disaster in the making. You know, we need this to continue to be a decentralized technology and have many different nodes and many different types of providers and outputs, and we need to have open source technology play a role in it as well. And yet that's under serious threat right now with people in industry and government calling for controls on open source. So this is a dangerous moment. I mentioned I've been doing this now for over 30 years, and I've seen some techno panics, some moral panics about technology come and go. I've never seen a techno panic come as quickly as the one we're witnessing about artificial intelligence, nor have I seen such extreme proposals put on the table so fast. I mean, even in the early days of the internet, there were concerns and people, you know, called for some pretty strong regulations, but they were calling for a giant new federal internet commission that was going to be established as a global regulator and have full-blown licensing of all online speech and activity. That's being proposed right now for artificial intelligence and people are taking this seriously. And that's an astonishing and a frightening thing. I didn't suspect 
this backlash to AI would come as, as quick yeah. and as fast as it has. My listeners are probably not super familiar with what's going on in Washington, D.C. I had Neil Chilson on, on a previous episode, whom you also know, and he said people in D.C., they wanted to regulate the internet for a long time. They feel like they missed their chance before. And mm -hmm. they're not into the weird X-risk, whatever stuff that's a Bay Area thing. But for them now, that's a chance to come out of the shadows and say, now is our time. Is that something you observe as well? Yeah, that's true. I mean, um, because the internet was born free, you know, it was born free of an, an agency or a body of law. It was treated, you know, as with general law. There were some people that were angry about and that later came to believe we should be more aggressively regulating the internet, social media, smart zones, online speech, and so on. And so now along comes AI, and this gives them a second chance to try to regulate all of these things. But do it with the concerns about AI and robotics as the animating force, as saying, like, we've got to do this because AI is going to take over the world when they really just want to, like, regulate what's on Facebook. And this goes for not just left of center people, but right of center people in the United States, there are a lot of conservatives, right of center conservatives who now favor algorithmic regulation of some sort because they don't like tech companies or they think that tech companies are, have biased algorithms against conservatives. And so there is a real danger now that there's, you know, bipartisan agreement uh, of the major parties in the United States, at least about regulating AI. Then there's another problem. With, with AI regulation, which is that AI is a general purpose technology that touches every other sector of an economy. And it has so many different sub-issues. You know, if you're concerned about privacy, safety, security, intellectual property, national security, jobs, healthcare, energy, environment, all of these things could be touched by AI. And so if you want to regulate any of those things, all of a sudden now, you also believe you want to regulate AI. And so every special interest, every regulatory advocate from those areas is coming forth with proposals to do exactly that. So it's terrible. <laughs> Again, I've it's never terrifying. seen so much re regulation being proposed so fast in my life. And yesterday on Twitter, in fact, I said this, I said, never in modern history, but probably never in history, period, has any technology been confronted with so many different regulatory proposals as quickly as AI? I've never seen anything like it. It's just astonishing to me. Yeah, terrifying. How can evasive entrepreneurs save the day if they can? What are some levers they could pull? Well, the good news is, let's go back to the basing problem. If ever a technology was moving faster than ever, it's artificial intelligence, right? AI and machine learning are code-based digital types of innovation. They have physical manifestations, but for the most part, the real magic happens through computation in a computer, in a data server, in a system, right? Those systems can be moved around. Those systems can be used creatively without everybody knowing what's going on. It's easier for innovation to happen in an intangible digital space than it is in a physical, tangible space. And so AI innovation is happening right now at a really rapid pace. That's the good news. The bad news is this. Those who want to regulate understand that. And so what they're proposing is what's called full stack regulation. 
the full stack of AI from not just AI models, but AI data centers, AI uh, semiconductors, and other AI-related systems that are physical in nature. They can be regulated. And so what's being proposed is incredibly intrusive regulations that would say like every data system or supercomputing cluster would be federally licensed and regulated and secured, and only certain people would have access to it. And then every semiconductor chip or GPU that's used to power an AI system would be tracked and surveilled, and you'd have to know everybody that uses it and how they're using it. These ideas have been percolating for a while. They come mostly from Nick Bostrom at the University of Oxford, who 10 years ago wrote a whole book called Superintelligence, where he proposed a global surveillance regime for anyone doing AI-related research and development. Like all scientists in the world should be like tracked in real time. And some people have extended that and say anybody using, you know, high-powered chips and high-powered data centers, they should be not just surveilled and tracked. They should be government-owned. They should be nationalized. <laughs> so now we're into crazy, like, neo-Marxist kind of like industrial takeover scenarios. And this is what I mean when I talk about a war on computation, right? And the problem is, is that people like Sam Altman at OpenAI and people at Microsoft, they endorse a lot of this nonsense. And that's incredible to me that they will do so. It could be because they want to capture it. It could be because they think it's really needed. I don't know, but it's dangerous. And I think this is going to be the single most important technological fight of our life. The thing to watch that's going to be really important in the short term is will regulators allow open source AI to continue to exist or will they try to crush it and how will they do it? Um, the easiest way to do it right now would be to tell anyone who's running an open source AI server in a data center like, like, like Meta with their Llama uh, launch. The government could just threaten them with massive fines and liability. So you have to shut off access to all of that. Then you have to go to a, a, a server, you have to go to a, a system like Hugging Face, and you have to say, you can no longer host models, open source models from other countries, unless they're regulated by our government. And if you do, we're going to fine you, or we're going to put you in jail. Well, Hugging Face would shut down. And if that happens, then open source AI will be destroyed. It will go to other countries, but Europe would regulate it too. I don't know if maybe there'd be some countries in the Caribbean or in Africa or Latin America that would take it up. Uh, it wouldn't be the same though. It wouldn't be as full-fledged of a competitor to larger systems. Well, if that's the choice we have to make, we are, we're ready. There's some really nice <laughs> well, you, places in Latin America and the Caribbean and in Africa. So, <laughs> Well, what's even more interesting is the way that the, probably the second most important open source AI system in the world right now was created by the government of the UAE. It's Falcon 40B, right? That's an open source system created by its technology industry or in information administration or something. It's a government-sponsored effort, but it's a government-sponsored open source effort. So I don't know how much control any European government or American government has over anybody in Abu Dhabi, <laughs> but good luck negotiating with them about telling them you should shut down your systems now. I think more realistically, The folks in Abu Dhabi would say, this is a great opportunity. The Europeans and Americans just shut down their systems. We're open for business over here. 
Well, Europeans and Americans would be shooting themselves in the foot and like allowing other countries to take the lead here. And then, of course, there's China, right, which is doing its own thing. I don't know how this plays out, but it has massive geopolitical ramifications for competitiveness, innovation, and national security. Like, there are some issues. Like, if we let the, the Chinese government just do whatever they want and we don't have competing systems that are really powerful, then we, you know, de democratic nations put themselves at a disadvantage and potentially at danger. We don't have advanced algorithmic systems. Yeah. Um, it's not a point I'm usually making about like, I'm worried about like national security of you know, Europe or United States, but sometimes at some level I am, I wouldn't want to give it all to the Chinese to like, just go ahead and rush it. You know, the Chinese have more supercomputers than any country in the world of the 500 biggest supercomputing systems in the world. I think 34.7% of them are in China and United States is number two. And then everybody else is just, so if the United States and like Europe and the UK, they, they just regulate all of this and make it like contained and limited. Well, then China's going to race ahead and they're going to have even more systems will be more powerful. But then other governments like the UAE and who knows in some countries in Africa or Caribbean or Latin America, they just say like, well, we'll, we'll do this. We'll be an offshore server farm and, you know, we'll create supercomputing capacity down here. Give us your money to do it and we'll invest it. And then the United States and the UK and Europe would have to basically like threaten war against these countries to stop data center access. Yeah. <laughs> It would yeah, be a yeah. really terrible world to live in if we got in like a geopolitical conflict over technological computational freedom. Yeah, yeah. It should just be allowed. If we just allowed this in democratic nations and had certain basic principles governing it, then we'd be fine. Yeah, the, the, the extremes most powerful weapon we have, sort of allowing things, making them open source, permissionless innovation, um, immigration too, right? If the United Absolutely. States just said, all right, Absolutely. our immigration policies is more permissive, you know, all the, yeah. or many Chinese engineers who are studying in the United States would be like, all right, that's thing here. Absolutely. Yeah. Th this is where the United States could lose the AI race because they've shut off the ta the flow of talent. Immigrants built Silicon Valley and, and much of the American digital economy. And then Europe, because of their stupid policies, all of the best and brightest companies came to America to over the last 25 years to build out the digital economy and all the great applications. And yeah. it was all about immigration and investment and where smart people are at, smart money flows. And that's why the U.S. beat Europe and the rest of the world. It's just that simple. And yet right now with AI, there's a huge shortage of talent. And just this week, it was announced that one of the leading new semiconductor factories that was supposed to open in the United States uh, is not going to be able to go forward because they lack skilled labor to do the work because America is so stupid that it's restricting like the best and brightest. We should be attracting the best and brightest. So this gives Europe a chance, but Europe's problem is they're still so precautionary principle oriented. They won't allow any of that innovation to happen. And nobody in the venture capital world wants to invest in European companies because they know the regulatory dangers. So this opens the door wide to other countries to be a home for innovation. The question is, do they have all their other things in order? Do they have a sound legal system, sound money? Do they have property rights and contracts? That's where other countries in Latin America, Arabia, Africa, they, there's, there's more uncertainty on that side, right? And so I'm not sure which nat nations prevail here if the U.S. and Europe really mess things up as badly as they seem to be planning to right now for AI. Yeah, but small little nations. I mean, could talk about this for hours. So many things that would <laughs> double click on. 
thesis kind of reasons why I do the work that I do, right? And we're working with like special economic zone status, right? So mm -hmm. the ones that get us very wide and far reaching legal and regulatory rights, right? Prosper where I'm based is the one that's most far reaching. I mean, all this mm -hmm. stuff is really small and emerging, but we're increasingly gaining the experience and working with jurisdictions, with countries such as Montenegro, Mauritius, like Uruguay, there are places that are very open and already thinking about how to attract the best and brightest that are going to look for where can they innovate faster to bring their life-saving and humanity-saving innovations to market. I'm still optimistic we're, uh, and we're anticipating that we've built some, some exiles and maybe that can also have an effect in reverse if we're able to show, hey, we can have all this great technology in other places. That can also then inspire the reformers in the United States or in Europe to say, hey, um, you know, it's kind of embarrassing that just doing all this yeah. stuff there. We are supposed to be the innovation leaders. So, um, right. But yeah, Adam, that was so fascinating to have you on the show. I feel like we could talk about for hours, so many, so much more stuff, so many nuggets in your work that I'd love to talk about more at some, at some point. How can listeners find you and engage with your work and join you on your mission? Sure. Well, they, uh, they can search for me online and they'll probably find, uh, my SSRM page for my academic writing. Um, you can find me on Twitter for my casual day-to-day -day takes on different things. I'm at, uh, at Adam Thier. Um, you can also find me blogging occasionally at the tech liberation front where I also have a medium page. And then of course my my uh, professional organization that I work for is called the R Street Institute at rstreet.org. And you can find uh, a lot of my other academic writing there. But you just search my weird last name and you'll find a lot of my takes on different issues out there. And my permissionless innovation book is available freely. You can find that online quite easily via search for it. Yeah, I love the tech liberation front as a, <laughs> as a name. Yeah, Thank you so much around. for coming on the show, Adam. Yeah, it was a really great pleasure, pleasure having you here. Thank you so much. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.